0: morning, everyone. You, if you walked in here uh, and got a chance to read the news or were uh, on social media and got a chance to catch up on how your friends are doing, I'm not really sure what you walked in with. And right now we're going to pray before we look at God's word. But um, there are times when, whether it's hap- what's happening in the Middle East or what's happening in ukraine or in other parts of the world where you read about these things and you feel totally powerless like what meaningful action can i make right now can i take right now and it doesn't even have to be something on the news it could be something that you found out about a friend is going through something in the city or in another part of the world or somewhere else in the country and there's nothing you feel like you can do about it you're not even sure where to start Or it could be your own life. There are things in your life where you feel totally powerless. And it may not feel like it. But going to God and entrusting yourself to him is meaningful action. And we can do that right now. Like there are so many things that remind us of our powerlessness and our inability. But here's something we can do right now as we pray. We can give ourselves to him. And we can ask him to do what only he can. And we can actually ask him to speak to us too. So let's do that. Dear Father, Lord, you are aware of things going on in people's lives and in parts of the world that we're not even aware of, Lord. Lord, if we were to know everything that you know, God, how would we even bear the weight of that burden, God? And Lord, you see things into our hearts, you see things in our lives that we're unaware of too. Lord, you know exactly what we need to hear. You know exactly what needs to be said. And so we do the only thing that we know to do in times like this, Lord. We entrust ourselves to you. Lord, surely our entire life is yours. We give ourselves wholly over to you. But we say right now, specifically, in the next 20 to 30 minutes, Lord, we're available to you, God. Say whatever you want to say. Do whatever you want to do. Would you speak to us, Lord? Would you take that step right now, that meaningful action, and entrust yourself to God? And would you ask Him right now to speak to you through His Word? Amen. In 2010, I read a book that stirred my imagination for church planting. I was a pastor of a church in Houston at the time. I didn't know very much about church planting or what it entailed. I really didn't like grow up around that kind of language. But the author of the book inspired me. In fact, his book played a critical role in Jothi's and my decision to move to New York City about three years later. So we moved to New York City in 2013 for, to, for the purpose of church planting. But then in 2020, three months after the city shut down, Darren Patrick the author of that book, died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. And it was later ruled to be a suicide. And I, like many others who had been touched by his life, was devastated. It made me think about the questions and the doubts and the despair that must have tormented him that nobody knew about that made him think, taking my own life must be the best possible option for me at this point. And it also reminded me how easy it is, not just for pastors, but for all Christians, to speak so boldly about God and yet struggle to see and sense Him. How can we be so full of faith in one moment, but full of questions, doubts, and despair in the other? Have you ever felt like that? And maybe you're not a leader in a church. But maybe you're in a position where other people look to you, that you're, the, you're the source of stability in their life, or you're the person who seems to have it all together, or you're the person who's for some reason, they reach out to you and ask for your advice, right? But they have no idea the kinds of despair and doubt that you struggle with. Or have you ever felt like that the only thing that you can predict in life is your own inconsistency? That you can be full of faith one moment, boldly declaring who God is, but later this evening, you're not even sure what your heart is going to be like. Maybe it's not as drastic as from morning to evening. It could be week to week or month to month or season to season. Here's the thing. This doesn't just apply to the modern Christian or the modern person. It applies to people in the Bible as well. People who saw wonders and miracles. People who served God with boldness. In fact, in today's passage, we will see how one man went from boldly declaring who God is with total confidence in God to wanting to quit, and he asked God to take his life. I wonder if you're there now. Maybe you're in the middle of a spiritual low, barely hanging on, lacking confidence in God, and nobody else knows it. Or maybe you're in a spiritual high, full of faith, but unsure what the future holds. You can't make any prediction about the future other than the fact that you're inconsistent and you might actually be in a spiritual low. Well, regardless of whether you're in a spiritual high or low, there are two things that we can trust that can strengthen us. And man, as I read this passage, I could tell you that in the spiritual lows of my life, regardless of what I might feel later this year or this week, these are the two things that have anchored me as well, and I I just implore you to hold on to them and trust them too. The steadfastness of God and the unseen work of God. The steadfastness of God and the unseen work of God. Let's look at the first one, the steadfastness of God. Let me set the context, okay? So God called a man named Elijah to be a prophet of Israel. And when you hear prophet, don't just think of somebody who is going to predict the future. That's not really what Old Testament prophets did. They called out against sin, evil and injustice in the land. They called the, they called out against the evil specifically committed by leaders and they would call the entire nation to return back to faithfulness to God, to remember who God is and their covenant with God. They weren't really anyone in those days Uh, who were atheists, right? So either, like, you could not navigate day-to-day life without praying to some kind of deity or some kind of God, right? So, like, if you were going to cross a forest, you'd pray to the God of the forest to give you safe passage, right? There were gods of agriculture. There were gods of fertility. So either Israel would trust in Yahweh, believing he is the one true living God, the God over all, and trust him for all things, or they would trust in other gods, and sometimes both. They would trust in Yahweh, but then they would believe and worship other gods for other areas of their life as well, like Baal, the Canaanite god, who is the god of fertility and agriculture. And the prophet Elijah wants to expose the false prophets and the false god, and he calls people, uh, the people of Israel, back to God to worship him and him alone. So what does he do? Well, he holds a contest, so to speak, okay? He tells the people to gather, and he, ga- he tells even about 400 prophets of Baal to be there as well, um, and other prophets as well. And he tells them, this is what we're going to do. We're going to set up a little contest. He doesn't call it that, but that's what it ultimately is, right? He said, why don't you, prophets of Baal, set up an altar, all right? put something on the altar, and call on Baal to, to bring down fire. And I'm going to do the same. I'm going to set up an altar, and I'm going to put something on it. And he actually ends up putting water on it to make it even more difficult. And I'm going to call on God to, to send down fire. And the God who answers by fire is the one true God. And he actually said, stop wavering. If Baal is a true God, worship him. Go ahead. If he's a true God, worship him. But if it is Yahweh, then worship him and him alone. And the prophets of Baal said, okay. This is in the just preceding chapter. It's not on the bulletin, but that's 1 Kings chapter 18. So the prophets of Baal go first. From morning till evening, they shouted to the heavens. They called on Baal to send fire from heaven. They cut themselves, they danced around, and there was no answer. From morning until evening, nothing. But when it was Elijah's turn, as I said, he even poured water on the altar. He gathers the people and then he prays this Lord, the God of heaven, the um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Immediately, fire comes from heaven, consumes everything and even licks up all the water. Right? The people fall on their face and they say, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah commands people to seize the prophets of Baal and to kill them. So what do you think he would do after such an incredible demonstration of power from heaven? After such a great victory, he runs for his life and wishes that he could die. That's what he does. That's 1 Kings 18. Everything I talked about, 1 Kings 18... First Kings 19, where we picked up today, he runs for his life and wishes he could die, and only the steadfastness of God can sustain him. Let's go ahead and read chapter 19, verse 1 through 10. Now Ahab, who is the king, told Jezebel, who is the queen, and she was devoted to, to Baal, told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, "'May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, "'if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life "'like that of one of them.'" Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left a servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. "'I've had enough, Lord,' he said. "'Take my life. "'I am no better than my ancestors.'" Then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. For the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into the cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the, God, for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So Ahab tells his wife Jezebel, Jezebel that what Elijah has done, and she's so angry that she wants to kill, kill him. And the man who has just seen fire come down from heaven because he prayed is now so terrified, so filled with fear, that he runs and he tells God, I've had enough, I don't want to do this anymore. Which is probably, I don't want to do this what we call ministry. I don't want to serve in this capacity. I want to quit. In fact, I want you to take my life because I'm no better than my ancestors. Now this is speculative. But Elijah may have expected a greater result because fire came down from heaven. He probably expected the, the nation, maybe even Ahab and Jezebel, to repent as a result of this. But whatever, whatever it is, what happened with fire coming down like from heaven has not translated into confidence for him. He's, he just now despairs of his life. In fact, he doesn't think he's better than anyone else who's gone before him. When it doesn't happen according to the way he wanted, when he doesn't get the response he wants, wanted, he wanted to quit. So what do you think God would do in the midst of all this? What do you think God would be God's first reaction, first response? Hey, Elijah, it's, it's okay, feel better, I'm still in it, <laughs> right? Or like, remember what I said in, 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 in Torah, or in the Torah, remember what I, what, what I did in, with Moses and the Israelites? He doesn't remind him of those promises, of those scriptures that we could point them to today. He cared for Elijah, but not his spiritual state. Not even his emotional state, but his physical state. He lets him take a good nap. That's what he does. And then he serves him a meal, gives him baked bread, a bread baked on hot coals in a jar of water. Then he lets him sleep again. Then he wakes him up and tells him to eat so that he won't be weak for the journey ahead. In fact, God doesn't address what Elijah's going through doesn't give him any kind of spiritual, explicit spiritual encouragement for another 40 days. 40 days and nights he goes and he runs to Mount Horb. That's where God actually ends up speaking to him. But for about 40 days and nights, God doesn't say anything to him, just takes care of his physical body, lets him nap. There's a steadiness of God to there, uh, to, in that, isn't there? He doesn't mirror Elijah's emotional distress. He doesn't respond to Elijah's protest with a protest of his own. He doesn't offer a rebuttal. doesn't think that that's the most pressing thing in that moment. He doesn't even give him an encouraging word. He cares for the whole person like a father would, like a friend would. The fact that he lets Elijah sleep, provides food for his body, and doesn't match the intensity of his emotions ought to bring us relief too. Like, there are times when you want someone to mirror your emotions. Like, if they see you weep, you want them to come alongside you, and you want them to weep with you. That could be helpful. Or if, if you're grieving something, you want, to, you want to know that they're beside you grieving with you. But then there are times when you don't want someone to mirror your emotions. Like, I, heard, I once heard a comedian share how in every relationship, when one person freaks out, the other person always feels the need to rise up and be the stabilizing presence in that relationship. It's not just like romantic relationships, even your friendships, right? Maybe you can think of somebody, maybe that's you, right? You're the one that tends to freak out, right? You're like, and, and there's someone else that's like, hey, that needs to calm you down to tell you that it's going to be okay. He gives an example, like if you go to a restaurant and you're eating with your friend or that other person and the, the food is not right, Let's say they have a meltdown. They're the ones who want to cause a scene that the food's not right, and you're the one that's, like, just, like, when the server comes and says, is it everything okay? And you're like, yeah, it's great, it's great, everything is fine. You know, you're the person who just wants to make sure that everything's okay, nobody, yeah, nobody, like, freaks out. And he says, one of these days, I just want to match their intensity and force them to be the one who stabilizes things, right? Like, so when the food's not right, he wants to clear the table, pour drinks everywhere, and then cause a scene so they could be the one that's like, yo, calm down, it's going to be okay, Right? There are times when you want others to weep with you, to mirror your feelings and to protest with you. And then there are other times when that isn't what you want, it's not what you need. You're a hot mess, and you don't need anybody else to be a hot mess with you, right? You need somebody who is stronger than you, that's not tossed to and fro like you are, that's not driven like a wave of the ocean. You need somebody who's going to be a stabilizing presence in your life, who will have enough confidence in what is happening and in the future that they'll let you take a nap. That they'll bring food. (laughs) Say, eat something. All right, go ahead, go back to sleep. Let's go for a walk, let's go for a run. 40 days, I'm with you, let's go. You need somebody like that. God actually doesn't directly address Elijah's protest for another 40 days but you see his steadfastness there, right? He brings stability and calmness. His steadfast love remains. You see, our feelings are important I often find that we, we dismiss them too easily, right? We, we dismiss them because we don't think that there's anything important, like they're not trying to tell us something. Oftentimes, our emotions and our feelings are trying to tell us something about that's, that, that we believe or that's true of our experience and we need to stop and ask, where is it coming from? We gotta trace its roots. Like, where did this start, right? So I think sometimes we too easily dismiss our emotions. But here's the thing. Here's where our feelings can mislead us. It's when... They contradict something that is true about God and what God has revealed in His Word. And so I want to ask you do your feelings lead you to believe something about God that isn't true today? They're important. But where you gotta slow down and you gotta like, you gotta, you gotta hold on, like not let it dictate you, is when you allow it to experience things or believe something that isn't true. Do you feel something today that contradicts what God has said about himself? like he is close to the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. Is that you? Or that he would leave 99 people who never strayed for the one that got away. Are you the one that got away? That father and mother may forsake you, but he is not like that. The Lord will hold you close. That as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your sins from you that it is tossed to the bottom of the ocean. Nobody can see it. That his faithfulness is as sure as the sun that rises in the morning. No matter what happens today, even if the clouds come and even if night arrives, that his faithfulness is as sure as the sun that will rise tomorrow. When you aren't sure what you will feel tonight, this week, this month, or later this year, your anger is the same. It is a steadfast love of the Lord. And here's what I want to do before we go to the next point. I just want to give you a moment right now to slow your heart and mind and just imagine yourself making a shift, letting go of the contradictory feelings that are ruling your belief in God, holding on to his steadiness the steadfast love of the Lord how can we find strength amid our spiritual highs and lows we can trust in the steadfast love of God and the second point we can trust in the unseen work of God let's continue reading verses 11 through 15 and then 18 he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 14, he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get their anoint Hazel, king of Aram, verse 18, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Yeah, so there are times that we're in despair and we're, we don't know why. Why are we feeling this? Like, where, where is this coming from? And there are times when you know exactly why you're feeling what you're feeling. Like, you can point to the circumstance and the situation. Elijah knows why here. He said, the Israelites have rejected your covenant despite how zealous I've been. They've killed your prophets, and now they want to kill me too. Jezebel is after me, right? That's the circumstance. Now, he does two things with the circumstance, and it's what we do too whenever we go from faith to despair. He internalizes, and he catastrophizes, okay? Okay? Like, he takes what has happened, and he makes it a message about himself. And then he catastrophizes, he takes that circumstance, and he therefore makes predictions about the future, that it's all doom and gloom. So what does he internalize? If you go back to verse 4, he said, I'm no better than my ancestors. He sees Israel's response as a reflection of himself. He equates ministry outcomes with himself. He internalized the message. They haven't repented. Therefore, I am a failure. I'm no better than anyone. My life is not worth living. I am am as good as my success. He's taken the circumstance. He's internalized it. And how does he catastrophize? He says, I'm the only one left. All the prophets are dead, right? God's work is in jeopardy. Things are not going to get better. But God has been at work even though he hasn't seen it or recognized it or hasn't been looking for it. In fact, God has preserved 7,000 people who have never worshipped Baal. 7,000 people who have stayed faithful to God, though he has not seen it and been aware of it. And before God even tells him that, he gives him this like life lesson. He encounters Elijah in a way that ought to demonstrate that God is at work in ways that are often unseen. God tells Elijah to go and stand on the mountain where Moses once stood, can imagine all the dramatic and powerful demonstrations of power that have took place on this mountain the author of this in first kings tells us that some powerful and dynamic things happen here too there's a powerful wind that is so strong imagine a wind so strong that it tears through the mountain that rocks are split and there's 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 such a, a powerful quake and yet and there's also fire and yet the lord is not in any of these things there's a sound of a gentle whisper, and Elijah hears the whisper, and he covers his face because there's something powerful about the whisper. Based on Elijah's most recent experience in 1 Kings 18, he would have every reason to believe that the God who answered by fire is always, at all times, in the fire. Right? Based on Israel's history, where wind is blown through a sea and parted, right? And they were able to walk on dry land, that if there's a wind, God is in the wind. If there's a quake and a mountain trembles, God is in the quake. But God gives him an experience, the mountain of God where he once met Moses, and he was not in the wind, he was not in the quake, and he was not in the fire, even though Elijah had just experienced it. He was not in the extraordinary visible things that you can sense, that you can sense. But God gives him an experience here that lets him know that he is at work in ways that Elijah cannot see, that isn't always extraordinary, that is often unnoticed, something that you got to sometimes be quiet to listen to and pay attention to, that you got to be watchful for. It's almost as if God is going to great lengths here to say, hey, Elijah, I often work in ways that are hidden, unseen, unnoticed, and something is small, and unassuming, and as gentle as a whisper. So think about the circumstance that has led you to despair. Think about that right now. Think about that. What tends to take you from full of faith and boldness to, I don't want to do this anymore, I want to quit, take my life, God. Think about that circumstance. What messages do you tend to internalize because of that situation? That you are what you feel? That you are your success? That you are other people's opinion of you? That you are how much you make? That you are your productivity? And what have you catastrophized because of the situation? Things will never get better. God is not in it. There is no hope. Have you become a prisoner of your past experiences that you can no longer see a new thing that God is doing? Do you only have an eye for the fire? Only an eye for the, a sense for the wind and an ear for the quake? Are you a prisoner of your past experiences and what others have experienced is that people have triumphed and celebrated that you cannot see a new thing that God might want to do in and through you? Have you so become a prisoner of your expectations for the future that you cannot see that God has preserved 7,000? That you cannot see a new thing God is doing. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the 1800s. He's known as a prince of preachers. And he preached to an estimated 10 million people in his lifetime. But he battled debilitating depression. His wife was bedridden for decades. He also dealt with chronic illness. And when he was 22 years old, in an auditorium or in a place I could see 10,000 people. I think it was, might have been the largest uh, gathering for, someone here, for, for a preacher in those days. 10,000 people. At 22 years old, as he stood to preach in front of them, someone yelled fire, which caused a stampede. Seven people died, and many were injured. That, as well as his physical pain, his wife's illness, and the pressures of ministry led him to experience crippling depression throughout his life. But despite this, he said this. I have found that there is a sweetness in bitterness not to be found in honey. A safety with Christ in a storm which may be lost in a calm. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. (laughs) Can I just read that again? I have found a sweetness in bitterness that cannot be found in honey. A safety with Christ in a storm which may be lost in a calm. It is good for me that I've been afflicted. But how does someone whose wife has been bedridden who experiences chronic physical pain and debilitating depression say something like that? Well, Zach Eswine in his book Spurgeon's Sorrows that explores Spurgeon's battle with depression writes this. Charles Spurgeon reminds us from experience that the effectiveness of God's promise does not depend upon our ability to feel it or see it. Just as a captive's hope for rescue depends not on her ability to recognize her rescuer or to reach out, but on the soldier's ability to remove what binds her and carry her to safety. The promise itself and the one who made it secure its anchor, even though at times we ourselves seem abandoned to the waves and tossed toss helplessly in our boats. He continues, it is Christ and not the absence of depression that saves us. So we declare this truth. Our sense of God's absence does not mean that it, He is so. Though our bodily gloom allows us no feeling of His tender touch, He holds on to us still. Our feelings of Him do not save us, He does. Our hope, therefore, does not reside in our ability to preserve a good mood, but in his ability to bear us up. Jesus will never abandon us with our downcast heart. There are a few things I just want to emphasize there before we close. Your bodily feeling right now, if you don't feel his tender touch, does not mean that he's not holding on to you. Your feelings of him are not what save you. He does. He does. It has nothing to do with what you sense. It has nothing to do with what your present experience may be. It is upon him just as it is upon the strength of the, of the rescuer who is going into a fire or going into the rubble to rescue someone in need. He is our hope. Jesus will never abandon us with a downcast heart. And we know this because he did not He had every right to when we rebelled against him, when we shook our fists against him, And when we were at our worst, guess what? Jesus was steadfast. His steadiness was seen. When he was beaten repeatedly, marred beyond human recognition that people wouldn't even tell that he's a human being anymore, he was still steadfast, facing the cross. Stripped naked in humiliation, the Son of God, robed in majesty, naked on a cross, he was steadfast. Bearing our sins, evil, and in the injustice of the world, he was steadfast. And in our darkest hour, there on the cross, he was at work in ways that we could not see for our good, for our redemption, and our salvation. Don't let your present feelings or future feelings, your present circumstances or your future circumstances, toss you like a wave of the ocean. Hold on to him instead. His promise does not depend upon our ability to feel it or even see it. It depends upon Him.